Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Donefsky, and today I spoke with Jaime Benedicto, the director of Project Bantu Philippines. Project Bantu uses the music and movements of capoeira, an Afro-Brazilian art that combines the elements of dance, acrobatics, and music, and translates them into activities that stimulate learning for children. Project Bantu's classes and support are helping children coming from the poorest neighborhoods who have been particularly hard hit by the strict COVID-related lockdowns in the Philippines. They do this by providing enjoyable yet structured activities that help reinforce in these children important values such as perseverance, respect, and leadership. I was not familiar with Capoeira before speaking with Jaime, and I found it fascinating to learn about. And I think you will too. I also think that you'll be impressed and inspired by the great work that Jaime and Project Bantu Philippines are doing. Today I'm speaking with Jaime Benedicto, the director of Project Bantu Philippines. Jaime, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And to start, can you talk a little bit about yourself and your background? Oh, sure. Um, well, uh, again, uh, just to say at the, at the onset how uh, grateful we are for the opportunity to be here for the platform, to be on your podcast, and to reach everybody who's listening to you. Uh, again, my name is Jaime Benedicto. I'm the uh, founder, one of the co-founders and the project director of a nonprofit called Project Gone to Philippines. I guess like to talk about myself and Project Gone to Philippines, I need to talk about capoeira. And uh, I began practicing capoeira in 2005. So that was 16, thereabouts years ago when I was still in university. Uh, I, at the time, I was studying psychology, uh, and I was also studying political science. But it was around that time as well, I mentioned that I started doing capoeira, and I got really into it. And it got so bad that uh, people would actually say that while I was in university, what I was studying was capoeira, and that psychology and all of the other things were like my hobbies while, while I was in school. I've always really wanted to be in, in development work. And, you know, that's always been a goal of mine. And so, like, uh, in, in 2010, when I met my master in Capoeira, Mestre Hoshinyu, and I discovered, like, that he had a social project that was using Capoeira to work with refugees, you know, in, in different parts of Australia, that he had done it in Brazil. You know, it was really, like, um, kind of like a great uh, convergence of, of uh, these things, which I was super, super passionate about. So I guess that's kind of like where I'm coming from. Um, I have this history with uh, an interest in development work, and then I started doing capoeira. And then through through like uh, a wonderful uh, series of events, I managed to, to find a way to put these things together. Yeah, and can you tell us a little bit about what capoeira is for someone who might not be as familiar? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for asking. That was that was actually one of the things I, uh, I was going to talk about. So. Um, yeah, what is capoeira? Capoeira is an Afro-Brazilian art, uh, and it combines different elements uh, like um, music, like dance, like game, like uh, mock combat. Like there, there are elements of uh, a lot of cultural elements that have to do with rituals, with traditions, with history, with philosophy. It 
was born in uh, the period known as the transatlantic slave trade, wherein millions of Africans were taken from Africa and brought to different parts of the world, right? But I guess like what, what some people may not know is that the, the largest population of Africans was taken to Brazil. You know, I've been doing capoeira for a while and like um, doing studies and research into, into this. Um, so one thing, like one of the striking figures is that Brazil received more African slaves uh, than, in, than all of the other places where they were taken on the planet combined. So Brazil had more, more of them. Um, and uh, the, the largest African population outside of Africa is still in Brazil, right? So Capoeira was created by enslaved Africans um, through a combination of different um, cultures that existed in Africa. And then when they were brought to Brazil, these things kind of came together. Um, and it's, since its uh, inception, since it began, it has always had this social dimension of the struggle for freedom and the struggle against inequality and the struggle for social justice, you could say. And so uh, we use that, you know, we, we, my, my, my teacher, Matthew Hoshino, like he, he developed a way of uh, using Capoeira as a tool for empowering young people, right? And young people from different um, social and cultural backgrounds. So, yeah, I guess that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, about Capoeira. I think that's, that's about all everyone uh, needs to know. It's very interesting. And I know you already kind of got into it, but can you talk more about what exactly Project Bantu does, and especially in relation with Capoeira? Sure. Well, uh, so Project Bantu is a nonprofit that uh, was founded uh, again by Mestre Hoshinho in the 90s. So Mestre, our, our, our founder, uh, he grew up very poor uh, as an Afro-descendant uh, in the state of Bahia in Brazil. And he had the good fortune of when he was very young, uh, um, being taken in by a master of Capoeira Angola. And he said that changed his life because, uh, you know, while he wasn't able to go to school, like in the traditional sense, uh, his education was very much through Capoeira Angola and through the activities, through the culture, through learning how to take care of the instruments, to make the instruments, through learning how to participate in the ritual, through going through the discipline of having to learn the movements and how to play the game and listening to all of these older uh, masters of Capoeira and their wisdom in. Um, this, is, this is really what was integral to his formation, right? And so like basing it off of that experience, like he uh, developed this methodology of working with vulnerable young people, you know, and taking a lot from his own life experiences as well growing up on the streets for a time. And so uh, we use Project Bantu uses Capoeira here in the Philippines and in different parts of the world as a tool for empowerment. So through through music and movements, we first engage vulnerable young people and we help them learn important life lessons, life skills, behavioral skills through Capoeira through the activity. So I guess you could say that Capoeira turns into the bridge that helps these kids learn. Right. The, the, the overall objective of the organization is not to produce uh, skilled uh, players of, of Capoeira, but it's to, to help uh, empower young people through Capoeira. Right. And um, teach them the, the, the principles of Capoeira that they can use uh, in their lives later on. I'm just wondering, can you explain why you brought Project Bantu to the Philippines specifically and why you think it's so important? It was my teacher's idea. Um, so when I met him, like we would bring him over here because 
he he's based in Sydney, uh, in Australia, which is uh, far from here, but not too far. And so we bring him here for workshops uh, regularly. And, you know, every time he would come here, uh, he would notice how many kids there were on the streets. Like, you know, in Manila, for example, you're driving your car. Uh, it's not uncommon uh, in some of the more affluent parts, for example, in the business district or where there are a lot of buildings and such. It's not uncommon that you'll you'll see like a, a seven or eight year old like knocking on your window and just with their hands out or trying to sell something. And this was something that really resonated with him, given his experiences in Brazil um, and the similarities, because Brazil, you know, it's also a developing uh, country. And so he would often he would often remark to me, and I can remember like very clearly these instances where he would say like you should try to do something here uh capoeira can help so many people in your country and so in uh, 2014 like i finally got the opportunity to do to do that i was pretty tied up with other commitments prior but in 2014 like i i found myself in a position where i could um try and start something and so and so that's that's when we began um it started like uh, I was already teaching adults at the time, and we were on the second floor of a house where we were doing our regular classes. And, you know, these kids who, who, who would just hang around on the street, like, again, eight, nine years old, they just came up. Uh, we would just, we, they would just show up in the doorway because um, they could hear the music, and it was something that, that, that attracted them, the drums. And, you know, we would have them try the classes, um, like invite them to join, play some of the instruments. And they would stay, you know, for five minutes, ten minutes. And then, like, inevitably they would run off because they, they would just be tired of, like, the experience already, you know, because because they were so young and their attention spans were, were so short. Uh, but, but, you know, over time, like, we began to get more kids together. And then it really started to look like there was a need to do something. And eventually we start, we stopped having classes uh, in that space for the kids and we uh, looked for their community. Um, and we actually went into their community. We learned a little bit more about it. And it became very much apparent that there was a lot of need. There were so many other kids there who we had not met. So, so many other kids. And um we decided that we needed to, to, to put the class there in, in the community and open it up to, to all of the kids um, for them to be able to join. And, you know, I don't mind saying that uh, since we've started, and this was some years ago, more than five years ago in that community already, it only becomes more and more apparent how much support these kids really need. Um, and if we expect them to, to break the cycle of poverty, which they're in, it becomes so much more apparent how much still is, is needed for them to, to be successful um, at that. Yeah, and can you tell us what these communities look like and what life is like for these children who are often living on the streets? Well, it's it's tough. It's it's definitely not uh, easy. You know, I, I um, had the, the good fortune, I suppose, of growing up uh, in a family that um, had means. Uh, I mean, we were by no means rich or anything like that, but it, it, it was very shocking for me to see what these kids had to to deal with, right? And sure, like you can, you would see these things on the television, and you would hear about them, and you would meet them in school, like uh, from time to time, like as part of like community outreach activities. But like actually going there, getting to know them, seeing what they have to live through, and being there with them 
for many hours uh, for, you know, it was, it was just very, very much a shock, right? Yeah, so, um, the community where we work uh, primarily is called San Andres Bukid in Manila. It was the first community where uh, we started working. And like an interesting fact about San Andres is that um, it is uh, the smallest geographically defined neighborhood uh, in the city of Manila, but it is also the second most densely populated area. So basically, it's a very small space, but it also has so many people living there, right? And so you might imagine what that means. Uh, you know, the Philippines is already a very poor country, and, you know, you have all of these people in a very small space with very limited resources. So um, a lot of the kids we work with, like, they have a very, they, 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 they lack, like, access to, to very basic services, social services that that are that they have the rights to have, right? Like things like clean water, things like decent housing, affordable electricity, you know, a decent public education system, like, and yet like society like levels all of these expectations on them that they have to do well, that they have to perform well. Um, there's just this uh, very large expectation for them to succeed. And it's really tough. It's really tough for me to, to kind of reconcile the two because when somebody is lacking all of these supports that are basic, like how do they, how do you expect them to succeed when for the rest of us whom, uh, for whom these things were always there, like it's already hard, right? It's already hard. You know, obviously there's a lot of drugs in the, in the community as well. Kids, like it's, it's common for you to see kids like as young as 10 or 11 smoking. There's a lot of abuse. It's very abuse, unfortunately, verbal and physical has become very normalized in the area, even within like families. Um, it's just common behavior. I, I can think of like one of my students uh, right now, for example, he's uh, in, I think, in the seventh grade. And he sends me messages periodically because the kids are studying online right now about how his classes are going. And I noticed that he's been missing like a few of his classes in the morning. So I said, so what's going on? And, and he said, um, I have nobody to wake me up in the morning. I said, well, why can't you like, why can't you ask your one of your parents to wake you up or something like that? And he said, well, we don't have a house anymore. So like we're living on the streets. And, you know, I, that was just very hard for me for me to hear, because how do you expect a, a kid to finish seventh grade when he has no house? Or he has nowhere to put his things, nowhere to put his notebooks. And the, what made it even worse for me was that he, the way he was explaining it to me was just very uh, matter of fact. Like, it was normal. Like, yeah. oh, we're living on the streets and, you know, there's nothing I can do. And, you know, the fact that that has become common and acceptable especially to that kid because he it, it it to me points to that he doesn't feel like uh he deserves any better than that you know and that 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 is somehow something that he should just live with that's like really it's tough you know it's tough it's tough for me to hear and it's tough for them it's it's just really tough for for kids from from very poor neighborhoods here Obviously, it's hard to expect so much of them when they have it at, really hard as it is without all these even exterior factors. And something else I want to address was how has COVID affected the lives of these children? Because I can only imagine it makes it even harder. For sure, for sure. Um, 
it's made things much worse. Like um, the social isolation, the disconnection from their peers, from their friends. Like um, some of the kids who are with me here, for example, they'll just say like out of nowhere, like you'll just see them like scratching their head and they'll be saying, I'm angry. Like, I'm just angry. And I'll say like, why are you angry? And they'll be like, I don't know. I don't know why I'm angry. But you know why they're angry is because they feel frustrated at the situation that has lasted for so long. Just this year, we marked one year of being under lockdown here in in Manila. And now, like this month, um, last week, actually, or this week, the 29th, they announced that they were putting the country back into the strictest form of the lockdown, which was absolutely nobody is allowed to leave the house unless it's for essential items only. So the, the kids have to stay indoors all the time. You know, they can't even go out to buy something or things like that or to take a walk outside or bike around the neighborhood is, is not allowed. So, like, it's just, it's it's really tough. Um, it's very unhealthy uh, psychologically. What I've seen as well in the communities is there have been a lot of unplanned pregnancies. Like, a lot of young people have become parents um, because they've just been stuck at home or, like, in, in the same space with really nothing to do because some of them can't work and some of them are just, doing their online classes, but those aren't as rigorous uh, in terms of how much time you need as uh, face-to-face classes, obviously. It's putting a lot of stress on their parents, which is, you know, also causing problems. Again, I can think of another one of my students who recently, like parents, uh, they had a fight and they left. Like they just literally both left the house. And he was the eldest. He is the eldest. And he has his own, like, he just, last year in December, had his own, his first child. And it, we've been trying to help him, like, get uh, a job where he can earn more money. Because, like, the job he's he currently has, it's, you know, he's earning nowhere near close to what he needs. And so his parents just left. And so it was on him to kind of take care of his partner, his child, and four of his siblings. And I was like, oh, my God, how are you How are you going to do that? You can't even feed your own son and your partner properly and yourself. And now you, your parents just suddenly expect you to, you know, and I I, I, I understood why they, the, the parents fought as well. It's because they're having problems financially because of the lockdown, because work has become unstable and stuff like that. And that, you know, so it's. It has like a lot of dimensions as to how it's making things worse. Again, there's also, we're not even talking about the online schooling that's going on here and how unfair <clears throat> it can be for, for some kids because like <clears throat> a lot of the kids from these communities, first of all, they didn't have the money to buy phones to participate in these classes. Second of all, they <clears throat> they don't, their parents um, can't give them the money to to buy uh, load uh, data, like mobile data for their phones. So we've had to kind of like step in and help in that area. But even still, like some of them, like the, the, the Wi-Fi is just so bad. Like literally they have to climb to the top of their houses. I have like kids have sent me pictures of them like studying on top of their, their very small houses. And it's obviously very unsafe, right? Because, you know, they're, they're like on wooden beams and like so... It's been tough. It's been tough. It's been it's been really hard. Like uh, online online learning for them has been uh, really tough, and the the whole pandemic has really just exacerbated an already difficult situation. Unfortunately. Yeah, and how do you know, or how have you seen that Project Bantu is working for these children? 
So uh, I would say there are a couple of ways, right? We are lucky enough to be working with uh, the Department of Social Welfare and Development, um, which is a government agency that one of the functions that they do is that they take in children who are, they say, rescued on the streets um, and they house them. Uh, and then uh, they try to reunite them with their families and their communities, um, given like the assessments conducted by social workers and other professionals. So we work with them. So when when we when we speak of like the kids who we work with who are in government custody, we are evaluated. We've been positive positively evaluated by their social workers, psychologists, um, activity therapists. Um, but the second way um, that we evaluate or that we know it's working is through watching the kids and hearing from the kids themselves, right? So um, we we conduct what's called the youth leader, what we call our youth leadership program here, um, for example, where we take kids and we train them to teach other kids. And that is one of the, the ways in which you can see um, like how Project Bantu is affecting these kids because through the process of learning how to teach other children, they themselves discover things about themselves and they change. In the government centers um, particularly, it's, it's been amazing like to see how these young people have become leaders in their communities, how they can run their, their, their capoeira class without with me just watching. You know, and that's been especially true during the pandemic because we can't be there physically. We, we do it like this. And we just tell the kids, okay, you're going to take 15 minutes. You want to talk about what you're going to do. And then they just they go up and they do it. And you can see that the younger kids, the other kids look at them as leaders because they respect them. They listen to them. And these kids, the, the leaders, they start to see themselves differently. They start to hold themselves more to account. Right, like um, needing to be a better example, needing to be more responsible. So, like these are other signs, I think that that the kids are changing. Right. Another way, for example, is um, to see like kids who who spent most of their lives like on the streets. When they come to us, uh, for example, and they say like um, they want to be part of uh, leadership programs, they want to be more involved in running our activities. You know, because there's this. I guess there's this narrative that we can sometimes have about kids who come from poor neighborhoods is that they want a different life. They want to be in like a more more well-to-do environment, but that's not always the case. A lot of the time, they, they're very happy with the lives that they have, even if that means they don't always get a lot to eat or that they're uh, addicted to substances. That's what they know, and they're comfortable there, you know, so... When, when kids come to us um, with this desire to change, and you can see that, where they want to be better in school, uh, that's a sign that, that the program has done something for them because it's, it's a sign that they are starting to see the world differently. They're starting to see other opportunities that are there for them and that they feel like that they can have those things, that they want those things because they'll lead to something better for them in the future. Yeah, I think it's great that you can see the impact almost on such a huge scale and in such different ways. So I was also wondering, you talked about a few specific stories, but can you share any other personal stories about your experience with the impact that Project Bantu has had on a personal level or an individual level? Uh, definitely, definitely. So um, since like the pandemic happened, um, 
we were teaching classes in different uh, places prior to that. But for the kids in the community and the kids who are in our leadership program, um, in particular, like, you know, we, 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 we wanted to think of a way to continue supporting them and conducting very limited uh, and um, controlled uh, activities with them, given that we're still in this pandemic. And so, like, without having a proper space, my house has kind of turned into the, the, the space for all of the activities to happen. Um, so actually, like, some of them are actually staying here. Some of them have come here to live here. Um, because their family situations are just very unstable. They don't feel like they could study at home. You know, so one 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 particular uh, young person I can think of, you know, uh, when when I started living here, like, he would start to come and visit. And, you know, he hadn't actually been doing capoeira for, for a while before then because he, he was very active at the beginning. He was, like, one of the kids who was always there. We even... Uh, went to we brought him to another country to participate in a international capoeira event, and then after that, like um, when the pandemic happened, like I heard that he was arrested because he was out on the street and it wasn't allowed to be out on the street. And he was playing with his cousins, like they were playing basketball or something, and then they were all just napped. And so, like I thought, like things were were going pretty badly for him. So I was really surprised when he came. Um, he started coming here. Uh, towards the start of the year uh, when, when we moved to this house. And, you know, he would come, he would help out with the cleaning. He would do capoeira. Like, I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have, he, he would volunteer to do all of these things. So that was like my first sign that I was seeing something was going on. And then like when online classes came back on, like he would come in the morning, you know, sometimes he would tell me I haven't slept yet, but I'm here to, to study. And so these were all like little signs that I could see that this kid wanted something else. So, so like I, I asked him like, um, you know, what, what's, what's happening? Like, um, why, why is your behavior changed so much? And he said, he just, he had a conversation he was saying with his grandmother who raised him and she, she helped him arrive at the, the conclusion that like, you know, he wants something else. He doesn't want to end up like his uncles. He doesn't want to end up like his dad who was killed by the police when he was very young. And that he wants something different, right? And that that you know that made me really proud, and that made me really happy because like that for him at his age, like very young, to to have that realization is is very important. And you know that's why he's staying here now. That's why I said, okay, I think you should stay here. You can work together on your school, work together on your capoeira. Like when the pandemic is over, like you can you can kind of spend your time in your community, but also living here. You know, so there, there are just so many of these these stories of of kids who discover through through the activity, through doing capoeira, through the years of of um, being with us, that they want something different, that they feel like it's something that's possible, that it's within their reach, and that they show the the the, the, the drive and the initiative to go after it. I think like one of the important things that people should know who, who don't work with kids directly, but who may be like interested in supporting kids is, is that this is not, not something that happens like, like that overnight. It's not something that changes instantly. There's, it, it really does not work that way at all. Working with kids is like raising kids. You know, they mature and they grow at their own time. And a lot of our job is to be there with them, to guide them, to to be the person who says no to them sometimes, who sets them right, you know, um, 
it's to be all of these things that that they're that they're needing in their lives that they might not be getting from their parents. Maybe they don't have parents. Maybe their parents are, you know, not equipped to to raise them properly. So it, it really is a long term process. It really is a long term process. Uh, I know that a lot of people, especially here in the Philippines, they're you know they they think that there's some kind of magic solution to this problem or or to to helping somebody turn their life around, but there isn't, but there isn't. It's, it's every day, it's every minute, it's every moment that you spend with them just trying to do your best. And when you think about it, that's how your parents, that's how our parents raised us, right? So educating kids, trying to empower them, it's, it's, it's not different. It's very much the same. Yeah, and it's clear that Project Bantu is doing such amazing work. So how can people get involved or donate if they want to? Well, I would say like they can first of all check our website. That's um, www.projectbantu.org.ph. Uh, on social media, uh, Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, you can also look for us, Project Bantu Philippines. Um, and uh, we're also on Patreon, which is a site where we can um, have people donate monthly. So if anyone is interested in um, supporting and helping make our work sustainable, um, you know, please do consider uh, becoming one of Project Bantu's Patreons um, on that side. And any funds that we do manage to raise will, will um, at, this, at this particular moment, will go towards supporting kids who are doing their online studies because of the pandemic, helping them with things like load um, so they can buy data to participate in their classes. Um, as I said earlier, um, my house has kind of become like uh, our youth center for the moment. Um, so it's where... We, we the kids come here to eat to 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 do their studies to do capoeira to rest um you know if they're sick and they need medicines like we also help out with that so donations will be used um for that as well um but also we're doing a lot of online classes right now for different groups of kids who are you know under lockdown so uh also uh, the funds would also be used to support um those classes being able to continue yeah, and lastly, is there anything you'd like to add about Project Bantu or reiterate? Sure. Uh, I guess, lastly, um, I'd just like to, uh, again, thank you for the opportunity to be here, but also to say a big thank you to all of our supporters and our donors who've, um, and partners who've helped us get to where we are now. You know, And also just to, to encourage whoever's listening to get to know more about uh, what it is that we do. And to say that it really doesn't take a lot uh, to support projects like ours, smaller NGOs. You know, it doesn't take a lot, like uh, a few dollars a week or, you know, or a month, like makes such a big difference, especially in countries like the, the Philippines. and can help us continue to change a lot of kids, touch a lot of kids' lives uh, in a positive way. So uh, if you can, um, you know, there's a lot of need. So uh, please uh, consider helping out. Yeah, well, thank you so much again. I think that what you're doing is so important, especially as someone who's in charge of the program, but also doing so much on a daily basis and everything. I think that's so amazing. Again, just thank you so much for for having me. And, um, you know, this is going to help us out a lot as well, like just being able to share it with the partners and people who work with us. It's going to help us help us move forward through the through this uh, pandemic.